All right. Well, hey, good morning, everybody. I'm glad you're here. Please join me in uh, finding Matthew chapter 5. We are going to spend the next couple of weeks uh, walking together through uh, the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, Usually Matthew 5 through 7 is where we say the Sermon on the Mount is located. Uh, We're obviously not going to go through all three chapters of Scripture today. We're actually just going to look at the first 16 verses, uh, but hopefully we'll get kind of a a cohesive gist of what all is going on in the Sermon on the Mount over the next couple of weeks together. Let me just give you caught up on where we are. Jesus has just withstood the devil's temptations in the wilderness in Matthew chapter 4. And you learned about that from Tom last week. And let me just say as a quick aside, Tom was so, so, so encouraged by you. Uh, Your attentiveness, your engagement in his teaching, uh, he was thrilled to be able to do that. Um, And I'm really thankful that we have pastors and teachers who are eager to open up the word and proclaim God's truth, not just to anybody, but to teenagers as well. That's usually a pretty daunting task. So I'm thankful for Tom. Hopefully you learned a lot from him as well about temptation. But that's what happened in Matthew 4. At the end of Matthew 4, Jesus gathers his 12 disciples and begins his ministry officially. Like he officially begins healing the sick and teaching in synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom of heaven. And very quickly, uh, crowds start to form. Uh, Jesus is teaching with power. He's teaching with authority. He's healing the sick. He's doing miracles. And these great crowds from all over the area start to gather together to listen to what he has to say and to see what he's going to do. And that's where we pick up our text this morning, on a hillside next to the Sea of Galilee. Now, uh, in verse 1 of chapter 5, we see uh, that it says, Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. That word mountain uh, is pretty roughly translated. It's not uh, incorrect to say that it's a mountain, but it's, it's more like a hillside. Think more like a hillside. And if you've been to Israel, specifically if you've been to the Sea of Galilee, more than likely you have been to a hillside where most scholars and historians suggest that, that this place is where the Sermon on the Mount was given. And I can't explain this to you uh, because... I don't know how it makes sense. I guess it makes sense uh, scientifically if you look at the physics of things. But if you you stand at the top of this hillside that that slopes all the way down into the Sea of Galilee, there's something about how the slope interacting with the water off the sea, bouncing back, something happens to where you could just be speaking at the top of the hillside and somebody way at the end of the bottom of the hillside next to the sea could hear you clearly. Um, I mean, I, I've done it. Uh, interns went to Israel in 2017, and we stood on this hillside and spread ourselves out and had conversations with each other that were seemingly impossible. It was wild. But this hillside is where Jesus goes up to, to see and to teach these great crowds, and his disciples gather around him. This should remind us of something. It should remind us that God's man is going up on the top of the mountain to proclaim and hear the word of God that all the people of God will hear and then be called to obey. This should remind us of Moses. Moses also went up on a mountain to hear a word from the Lord and the whole people of God would hear it and obey it. So Jesus sits down in verse 1. It says, when he sat down, his disciples came to him. Now, sitting down in that culture was a, uh, a, an image of 
for you to listen in. If somebody sat down, it was like, everybody needs to get quiet because somebody is about to say something really important. And so Jesus sat down as he would have oftentimes to begin to teach, and his disciples were listening, waiting to hear what he had to say. It's almost as if Jesus is getting all of the crowd to, to, to pay attention to what's he about, what he's about to say next. And these followers, remember, had already heard some of his teaching. And we see that at the end of Matthew chapter 4. He'd, he'd already taught some things. He'd already called for people to repent because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He was continuing John's message from, John chapter, from Matthew chapter 3. And, and these crowds have already seen his miraculous power to heal. They've already seen him heal the sick, heal the lame. And so they're all thinking, what is he going to do next? What's he going to say next? And that's where we are in the Sermon on the Mount. We will mostly camp out in the first 12 verses this morning, the Beatitudes. But we'll quickly look at Jesus' teaching on salt and light and then conclude with some, some thoughts. So let's, let's read the Beatitudes together. We'll pray and then we'll jump in. Starting in at verse 1. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Let's pray. Oh God in heaven, we thank you and worship you and praise you for dispensing your grace on us yet again on this day. Your mercies that were new to sustain us this day have brought us together in this place to hear your word and to be molded and shaped by it. So God, I pray that you might focus our attention now on your word more than anything else going on in our life. It's not that those things are unimportant, but what is most important right now in this moment is your word and how you might speak to us through your word to make us more and more like Christ. So God, give us ears to hear and eyes to see. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so three big ideas, kind of three tentpole things that we're going to hang some stuff on throughout the morning. Number one, if you're taking notes, the Beatitudes are a guide for Christ-likeness. The Beatitudes are a guide for Christianity and, and Christ-likeness. And, and we need to think about that word Beatitude. Beatitude is, is coming out of that word blessed. Historically, we call these verses the Beatitudes. And it's all about living a blessed life. Life. I know that each one of these verses could be their own sermon. We could talk a lot about what it means to be merciful and what it would mean to receive mercy. We could talk a lot about what it means to be pure in heart and what it means to see God. There's a lot wrapped up in each verse. 
But today I hope to just give you the highlights, but I want to encourage you to dive deeper. Dive deeper at your own tables after I'm done teaching. Dive deeper on your own through personal study. Dive deeper with your families and have conversations around the table about how you might walk out these commands or walk out these lifestyle uh, encouragements that Jesus is giving you and me. If you want to live a blessed life, here's what it would look like. So let's walk through these Beatitudes together and discover who and how God delights to bless. Who does God delight to bless and how does God delight to bless? He blesses certain kinds of people and he blesses them in certain kinds of ways. And that's what the Beatitudes are all about. First though, a quick word on the word blessed. So over and over and over, you see in the Beatitudes, Jesus says, blessed are the blank. Blessed are the blank. Blessed are those who do blank. Notice right here in the first part that that Jesus doesn't say that the poor in spirit or those who mourn will be blessed. It says here in verse 3, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek. They are blessed right now. Being blessed as a follower of Jesus, being blessed as someone who uh, obeys these beatitude commands is not a future event. It is a present reality. We usually think of being blessed as healthy or financially well off or privileged in some way. But blessed here means that these people are the recipients of God's covenant love and his care. So what does it mean to be blessed? It means that I am the recipient of God's covenant love, that he's made a commitment to me, and it means that I am the recipient of God's care. Not, is, not, not only is God obligated to love me, but he is delighting to care for me. That's what it means to be blessed. His relationship towards the blessed is no longer judgment, but grace. And Jesus is not saying that God will bless them as though he will act upon them in some happy way, like he's just going to make your life happy all the time. That's not what it's saying. No, they are blessed people. This is their state, and the reward of their lifestyle is bountiful and glorious in this life and in the life to come. So let's run through these together. Number one, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, what does it mean to be poor in spirit? Is spirit like a currency? And if you don't have enough spirit points, then you're poor in spirit? Like, what does that mean? Well, D.A. Carson, I think, says it really well. He calls it spiritual bankruptcy. In other words, someone who is poor in spirit knows that they have nothing to offer spiritually. Someone who's poor in spirit knows that they have nothing to offer the Lord in order to earn blessing. We have nothing to offer in order to achieve grace. Instead, we come to God knowing our poor condition and our desperate need for Him. So if you're poor in spirit, what it means is that you know you're not okay and you know that you cannot make this right on your own. You're poor in spirit. You have no means to make things right. And so you run to God desperate. You run to God in need. You run to God asking, pleading, begging that he might show his kindness. And what is the reward? Different from the majority of the Beatitudes, you just take a look at verse 4, for example. Look at the second part of the verse. 
they shall be comforted. Verse 5, they shall inherit the earth. Verse 6, they shall be satisfied. Verse 7, they shall receive mercy. Look up at verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The blessing of those who are poor in spirit is not a future reward. It is a present reality. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Students, if you are poor in spirit, if you are desperately coming to God for grace, then you can have confidence that right now you are a citizen in God's kingdom. You're a citizen in God's kingdom. He has brought you out of darkness and into light. We are by faith in his goodness, citizens right now. The kingdom of heaven is ours. Verse 4, blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted. It's been a weird week. Uh, maybe not as much for some of you, uh, but for people who were alive in 2001, uh, or at least had memories of 2001, uh, this week, especially yesterday, has been, has been a kind of a weird week. It's the 20-year anniversary of 9-11. 20-year anniversary of our nation and the whole world witnessing wickedness in a way that was not expected. If we are not grieved by sin, if we're not grieved by the brokenness of this world, then something is off. When we think about our brothers and sisters in hiding for their faith, or when we think about our deep-rooted tendency to go our own way rather than the way of godly wisdom, we might be driven to mourn if we are a blessed person. If we're the recipient of God's covenant love and care and we come to grips with our sin, we come to grips with our brokenness, we come to grips with the fact that we never fully do what we want to do and we end up doing what we don't want to do, that would lead to mourning. That would lead to grieving. But if that's our posture, the promise of Jesus is that we will be comforted once and for all. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. There's a day coming when those things will be gone. Those sad things will not last forever. Our reasons for mourning have an expiration date, Jesus says. Verse 5, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. What is meekness? Meekness is not weakness, as the popular phrase says. No, meekness is self-control. Meekness is a recognition that you have faults. You're not perfect. To be meek is to recognize your own faults and therefore an ability to receive criticism with grace, right? So meekness is connected to humility and the Lord promises that the meek will inherit the earth. They will be heirs to the world, which is theirs in Christ Jesus. We need self-control and humility in our life. We need to live our lives not as haughty or as arrogant or as bombastic, but as meek. Jesus had all the power in the universe. He's omnipotent. He's God in the flesh. And yet, he was meek in the world. Verse 6, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Righteousness here isn't just personal. I mean, it is. 
You and I should be striving to be righteous, striving to be holy, striving to be obedient to God's word. But it's not just personal here. Hungering and thirsting for righteousness is a hungering and thirsting for righteousness, not just in my own life, but around me as well. So if I see unrighteousness around me, if I see injustice around me, if I see brokenness around me, I should hunger and thirst to bring righteousness to that event, righteousness to that problem, to bring justice where there is no justice. The promise here is that God will satisfy us fully one day. If you hunger and thirst for righteousness, you will be satisfied. There's a day coming where there will be nothing left but righteousness. So the question is, do we strive to be holy as God is holy? Do we actually hunger and thirst for righteousness? Are there aspects of our lives where we actually hunger and thirst for unrighteousness instead of righteousness? When we're glorified, our righteousness will be complete. But until then, we must see that a blessed life is a life that hungers and thirsts to see righteousness in our world and our own life. We long for it. We, we fight for it. We work for it. We strive for it. I mean, if I get to like lunchtime... My body is letting me know that something is not right and that I need to do something. I need to physically move myself towards food. Like that's the answer. The answer to the problems that I'm feeling is food. I'm hungry, right? Or if I go do something uh, that requires a lot of effort, if I'm out working in the yard like I was yesterday, I get to the end of that and I'm sweaty and I'm nasty and I'm, I'm, I'm thirsty. I need something to quench my thirst. And I won't just sit there and just go, man, I just really wish I'd stop being thirsty. I'd be like, no, I need to go do something to quench my thirst. In the same way, if we hunger and thirst for righteousness, it isn't just a feeling that we do nothing about. We do something about our hungers and our thirsts. We act on those things. And so if we hunger and thirst for righteousness, we will, we will work towards, we will act towards, we will obey God's word towards righteousness. We'll long for holiness. And that longing finds itself uh, played out in our lives through actions. All right, verse seven. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Mercy is a mark of a follower of Jesus. We have already received the mercy of God. If you're a Christian, you have received untold mercy. You have not been given what you deserve. That's mercy. And if that's the case, if we already have received infinite mercy, how can we not extend mercy to others? So just think for a moment. Has someone wronged you? You think of someone in your mind. Has someone overlooked you? Has someone taken advantage of you? Was someone critical towards you? Mercy. Mercy is the answer. If meekness is the virtue of receiving things rightly from others, that humility to receive criticism, to recognize our faults, then mercy is the virtue of responding rightly to others and not giving them what they, what they deserve. And the promise here is that we too will receive the fulfillment of God's mercy at the coming of his kingdom. You have received his mercy now, but there is a day coming where his mercy will be infinitely on display when we see Jesus face to face, when we stand before his throne. Verse eight, blessed are the pure in heart for they shall see God. What 
a promise. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. This is single-minded devotion to the Lord and His goodness. That's what it means to be pure in heart. Single-minded devotion to the Lord and His goodness. It's a desire for purity in every aspect of our lives. Not just the aspects of our lives that people see. But when no one is around, when, when no one will catch us, it's a desire for purity. And what's the reward for a life like this? We will see God, the one who is infinitely pure, the one who is light and in him there is no darkness at all. We will see him as he is, John tells us in 1 John 3. The most glorious, most beautiful, most captivating being in existence, we will get to see face to face. So there's an area, is there an area rather, this is a question, is there an area of your life where if you're honest, your heart is not pure? I mean, all of us can think of something in which in our lives, our hearts are not pure. Is there some way you're going down that does not honor the Lord? And you may think you're okay now, but if you just look ahead the next couple of steps, there's no way you're going to find yourself still in the light. If that's you, then turn and trust the Spirit of God to recalibrate your heart towards purity and towards truth. I want a pure heart. We want to be like David. To ask the Lord to search us and to know us and to see if there's any wicked way within us to find our hidden faults, the blind spots of our lives that would cause us to not be pure in heart, the blind spots of our minds that cause us to think wrongly about the things of this world. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Verse 9, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Notice Blessed are the peacemakers. The person in question here, this blessed person in verse 9, isn't merely a peaceful person, although that must be true. This isn't just talking about interpersonal peace, like everything is okay. I can go to bed and not worry. That is what it means partly to be peaceful. And that's the mark of a peaceful person. But the blessed person in verse 9 is not blessed are the peaceful It's blessed are the peacemakers. They don't just go along to get along. They don't just try to make, not make any waves. They don't rock the boat. It's, no, no, no. They make peace. They enter into brokenness. They enter into tension. They enter into strained relationships and situations, and they bring the peace of God to bear on it. Often, When we're out in the world, this looks like proclaiming the gospel. Because if you come into contact with someone who is lost, they may have suppressed the truth of their tension, but they are not at peace. And how do we make peace with those who are far from God? We proclaim to them the good news that God has made peace in Christ. But interpersonally with one another, we find tension in our lives. We see brokenness around us and we bring the gospel to bear on it. People in dispute need to be reminded of the gospel that brings peace. 
And it's those kinds of people, Jesus says, who will be called sons of God, heirs of God, not just male descendants, right? Girls, we get that. Sons of God, inheritors of God's treasure. That's the reward for being a peacemaker. Verse 10, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Jesus continues in verses 11 and 12 and says, the world will revile you and persecute you on account of him. Notice the prophets in verse 12. Look at verse 12. It says, rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So think about it. Think about these verses like this. The prophets in verse 12 were persecuted for being faithful to God, right? Prophets heard the word of the Lord. They proclaimed the word of the Lord. They were faithful to the word of the Lord and they were persecuted for it. Jesus is saying, you will be persecuted on account of me. So what's Jesus doing here? He's saying the persecution of the prophets for their obedience to God and your persecution for obedience to me is the same. It's a clear claim right here that Jesus is making himself equal with God. That his words have the same authority, the same power. The world hates the truth. And so trouble will come as you pursue righteousness. But take heart because those who experience this hardship can know that theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Not will be, theirs is the kingdom, verse 10 says. Now these are beautiful, wonderful, glorious beatitudes that show us what a blessed life will look like and what those rewards will be and what those rewards are. I would encourage you to memorize these. I mean, memorize that you know, blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted because you will mourn. Your life is going to lead eventually, if not already, into deep grief. And so when you mourn, it is a good reminder to have this scripture, not just in a book, but in your heart. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. And that comfort may not come today. But when I mourn, I'm reminded that there's a day coming where I will not be able to mourn anymore. Like blessed are those who are pure in heart, for they shall see God. So when I'm tempted towards lust or towards anger or towards pride or towards any of these things, I can remember that if I'm pure in heart, I will see God. And the things that my heart and my flesh and my mind want to behold sinfully in this world will grow more dim as the promise of seeing God will grow more bright. That's what it means to live a blessed life. Okay, quickly, last two things. Number two, if you're taking notes, salt and light are images for our engagement. We'll come back to the Beatitudes in just a moment, but... Salt and light are images for our engagement. Look with me in verse 13. We're just going to read through this quickly and say just a few words. Verse 13, you are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You're the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand. 
And it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Jesus continues coming right off of these Beatitudes with two big images, two big metaphors for us to consider as followers of Jesus. How do we, as the blessed ones of God, engage a world that hates him? Well, we engage as salt and as light. As salt, we combat the rot of sin in the world. Like salt, we are able to disinfect the culture as we are able. We preserve the world. You know, salt was a preservative in the first century. They didn't have refrigeration. So how would they keep their meat from spoiling? They would salt it and it would preserve the meat. It would keep it from spoiling. We too, as salt in the world, preserve the world from continuing to rot away because of its wickedness. But if we are mixed with the world in such a way that we lose our taste, lose our saltiness, we will not be effective witnesses in the world. So we must be careful not to compromise the truth of God's word with anything else the world might have to offer. We must continue to fight for purity in every sense of the word. So hear me on this. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. But your purity of heart will be fueled by and clarified by and filtered through a pure mind. And that pure mind has to have right information in order to lead you to the right things. So I can have a pure, sincere, whole life orientation in devotion and love to a false God. And it doesn't matter how sincere I am because that God is wrong. That ultimate thing in my life is wrong. And so we have to have not just a pure heart, a pure uh, devotion, but also a pure mind. We have to know the truth. We have to believe the truth. We have to be able to defend the truth. As light, we shine in the darkness in such a way that cannot be missed. So a city set on a hill, Jesus says, cannot be hidden. In those days, in the first century around Judea, most of the buildings were built with white limestone, right? So in the daytime, if you're wandering through the wilderness or wandering through the desert or wandering through an area, and you look up and you see a city built mostly of white limestone it will be a bright, reflective thing that you cannot miss. And at night, when the families of the town and when the businesses that still are working light their lamps, you will see in the darkness a light that you cannot miss. In the same way, we shine as light in the darkness, but we do not shine for our own sakes. Verse 16 is clear. We shine... Let our light shine before others so that they may see your good works and do what? Glorify your Father who's in heaven. Your light, your holy lives, your engagement of the world should cause the world to not notice you as much as notice the one who made you live like that. The reason why you are living as light instead of darkness. Now, we live our lives in such a way so that the light of Jesus might expose the darkness and bring others into the light. But here's here's a problem. We start to land the plane. 
You heard me read through those Beatitudes, and we've heard these two metaphors of salt and light, and all of us have something pretty dreadful to admit. None of us does any of this. We are not poor in spirit. We think we have to achieve something to earn God's favor, and God forbid, we believe that we can. We are not grieved by sin as we should be. We are not meek. We do not long and hunger and thirst for righteousness all the time. We're definitely not merciful towards one another. We're not pure in heart. We're not makers of peace. And often we cause the tension that needs to be relieved, not the ones who relieve it. And we often aren't persecuted for righteousness sake in our world because we don't stand for righteousness in the first place. We're not pure salt. All of us have been mixed into the world in various ways through our sin. And our light is dim at best, like a candle in the desert. Like the law of Moses on the first mountain, we hear God's words and it becomes apparently clear. We do not measure up. But these verses, hear me, these verses are not burdens for us to bear that should drive us to despair. They cause us to look around and see and hope and wonder, is there anyone who can actually do these things? And there is. So the third point, Jesus is the one most blessed and bright. Jesus is the one most blessed and bright. Jesus, the one teaching these things, is the most blessed man to ever live. He lives out his days squarely in the will of God at all times. He was pure salt in a world full of sinful rot. He was put on a wooden stand to shine as a light for the whole world to see when we sent him to the cross. And students, the good news of the Beatitudes and the good news of his teachings of salt and light is that Jesus fulfilled these things perfectly for you and for me. So now we're not burdened into the grave with trying to accomplish and work and earn and toil and strive and get these things in order to somehow achieve God's blessings. We're now called to follow Jesus and live in the power of his spirit as he cultivates these things in us by grace. We long to be blessed people, but we do so knowing without a doubt that our blessing was earned by Jesus, not by us. And it's given to us absolutely free. So my hope for you is that you would see these Beatitudes not as burdens, but as gifts. You would see these Beatitudes not as a litmus test for you to fall into despair, or not as a a test for you to puff yourself up in pride, but instead as a reminder to keep your eyes fixed on Jesus. As he cultivates us in us these Beatitudes.
in my own power, I will never believe that I am poor in spirit. I'll always hold on to this idea that I can do something. I, I can give something. I can, I can contribute something. I can achieve something. It's the Spirit of God who has to work in us to show us the truth. No, you're poor. You're spiritually bankrupt. You have nothing to offer. I will never, on my own, hunger and thirst for righteousness. I'll hunger and thirst for me. I'll hunger and thirst for status. I'll hunger and thirst for comfort. I'll hunger and thirst for control. I'll hunger and thirst for love and affection from all the wrong people. I will not, on my own, hunger and thirst for true righteousness. I might hunger and thirst for self-righteousness so that you think I'm awesome, but I won't hunger and thirst for God's righteousness. The Spirit of God has to remind me and change my appetite, change my desires, change your desires. And students, I know there's no magic bullet. I believe in God's sovereign work and I believe in his power and grace. And I know that there are not words on my mouth that that can convince you. There really is an offer for you and for me right now that if we believe these things, they will be ours for free in Jesus. Like right now, if, if you really believe that these are things that you cannot earn, that you cannot manufacture, that you cannot cultivate on your own, God really is offering you these things in full because Jesus did them perfectly for you. And so my, my prayer and my hope is that you all would stop and rest. And trust that he's enough. Let me pray for you. God in heaven, we come before you confessing that we have sinned. There are things that we ought not to have done and there are things that we have left undone. There are people who have mistreated us, and there are people whom we have mistreated. There are desires that we have run after towards our death, and there are desires that we have suppressed that would lead to life. Our hearts are deceitful. Our hearts are sick. But we are not merely victims, Lord. We are also traitors. The brokenness of this world wasn't something that just happened to us. We brought it. And so, God, I'm I'm asking, I'm, I'm praying that by your power, by your grace, by the work of your Holy Spirit, who can do the impossible, would you soften our hearts this morning? For those of us who are in Christ, who have confessed our faith in you, would you remind us in a fresh way that we come to you with burdens to receive not condemnation, but rest. And for those of us who are not in Christ, I think about the woman with the issue of blood who just says, if I can just touch his garment, I'll be made well. God, would would you show those who are not in Christ that you stand before them ready to receive them? And that you have the power, when they're too weak to lift their hands, to grab them towards yourself. 
Jesus, we pray that you might have your way among your people, that you, the good shepherd, would tend to your flock with love and with care, that you, the God of the universe, would enter into covenant love and faithfulness with us, those who never deserve it, and live as recipients of your sheer grace now and forevermore. Ours is the kingdom of heaven. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.